That's so cool. Wait for the plane. Vroom, vroom. Fly, vroom. Get thee to LaGuardia. <laughs> Get thee. Oh, that's becoming a bumper. <laughs> Get thee to LaGuardia. Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. The Murphy Brown Podcast, Childhood Opinions. <laughs> Jim's Cup, which is not Jim's Cup. I love this line so much. They don't say the sexy times, but they were the sexy times. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode 21, The Bickners. Hi, this is Lauren. Hey, this is Jesse. And welcome to another episode. See, I'm trying to mix it up. I almost ended your sentence with of FYI the Murphy Brown podcast like I just can't not go into my NPR voice and I felt like I was doing an impression of you I know because <laughs> I like your openings oh thank you they're so natural <laughs> so this episode was directed by who do you think Jesse Whoopi Goldberg wow so close so close was it her twin Barnett Kelman Yes. <gasps> Amazing. I confuse them all the time. That's okay. Yes. Yes. It was written by friend of the pod, Russ Woody. Hi, Russ. Hi, Russ. It aired May 15th, 1989, but was filmed almost a month before April 14th, 1989, which makes it the last episode filmed of season one, technically. Yes. And you have, you, Lauren, mm-hmm. you have a, um, a theory about this, don't you? I do. I think that it'll become a little more clear as we go along. Mm -hmm. But the structure of this episode with the sort of wink at the audience at the end, the sort of self-referential comedy, Mm -hmm. so much applause. It feels very joyous. Yes. The return of Robert. Uh Uh-huh. It seems to have a lot of uh, little telltale signs of not necessarily finales, because Mm -hmm. something we'll talk about when we get to the morning show. We asked friend of the show, Corby Sayamis, who we asked a lot of the background information that we get. Of course, we always credit her and let you know. Yes, she is the memory bank. But I'm noticing that some people might not listen to every episode, and I call her Corby. Yes. Who might not know who I'm talking about. But uh, we asked her about this. You know, why do you think this was moved around? You know, and she did bring up the point that finales really weren't what they were back then. Yeah, it was very different than, especially now, like, I am I was thinking when we were talking about this, about, oh, was this the season finale originally? And I'm thinking in terms of when we, every season for Game of Thrones, they release how many episodes, when they're going to be aired, and what all of their titles are. Everyone freaks out. We know that there's a thing, and, like, the finale's going to be this. And like, there's there's a lot built up into a season and how it's going to air, which was not the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that, because I always remember the finales being a big deal. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the seasons, the end of season two for Murphy Brown is a big it deal. It is a big deal. It changed very quickly. I mean... As a kid, we didn't have the fall finale thing yes. either. So that also became a thing. Yep. Uh, we did have sweeps, though. But Corby doesn't think that this was meant to be the finale. Honestly, mm-hmm. she just says she doesn't really remember. But I just feel they're sort of telltale little things. There are nice little caps to things yeah. in this episode. Especially, it, like, what we'll talk about. Robert. Yeah. And when we get to the morning show, I think we'll talk more about that, too. And we originally also had mentioned this to Corby because the two of us always felt like the summer of 77 felt like should have been the finale thematically. Mm-hmm. But I actually now do agree with the morning show. And I we'll do. Ta- yeah, we'll talk about more than we get to that. Yeah, after, I see it now. After deep diving the 77, I'm like, oh, 
Yeah. Huh? I think it's mm-hmm. the whole season, and I'm going to credit a lot of that to something or many things that you've said <gasps> during the year. So, but I'm going to save that. <gasps> It's like morning a present. Show. It's about a certain someone that you, well, I love too, but you talk about a lot. Anywho, so the song at the beginning, the cold open, if you may, is It's a Man's World, sung by Mr. James Brown. Uh, it was written by James Brown and his one-time girlfriend, Betty Jean Newsom. Mm-hmm. It reached number one on the Billboard R&B chart. It was number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. Um, its title, funny enough, is a play on the 1963 comedy It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Wait, did I say enough mads? Did you say four? Because there are four. Mad, 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 Mad World. I did it. Yeah, nailed it. Which is a great movie of just, let's take a whole bunch of funny people from this era in the 60s mm-hmm. and throw them in a movie together. It is definitely one of those movies. Although now I'm, because I live in a post-Donnie Darko world, I mm-hmm. can't see Mad World without thinking of that song now. So I'm very glad to have a reminder of that movie because it's a very different uh, tone. So it was on the King label. Um, Rolling Stone called it chauvinistic, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though it's co-written by a woman. And she felt that it was based on her relationships with men at the time. But interesting enough, later on, she claimed that James Brown didn't actually write any part of the song. And he somehow forgot to pay her any royalties at some point. So there was a bit of a, a legal battle over this. Awkward. So we open on the, the opening chords of It's a Man's World. And the, the opening shot is not what I would assume is going to happen with this song. Well, I had actually forgotten why Frank was so upset. Yes. I assumed it was over a woman, and I was so wrong. Well, because of the song. True. I assume. But also, (laughs) we're seeing our now-established neurotic Frank standing in the elevator looking, and the only term I can come up with is shell-shocked, which I know is now a a dated term for a true condition. But he looks shell-shocked standing in the elevator and is just staring out mouth a little agape, and the, the doors of the elevator start to close before he realizes it. And by the mm-hmm. time they're closing, he just lets it happen. Uh, when the doors open again, he walks in. His mouth is still agape. And he still looks very numb and a bit gobsmacked. And he walks around in the bullpen around the, the coffee station and puts, takes off his backpack and holds it out to place it where it's supposed to go and just drops it in midair because he doesn't realize that he's not putting it in the right place. And then he walks over and picks up a muffin and pulls the wrapper off the muffin and then throws the muffin away and just absentmindedly eats the crumbs off the muffin. And then we see him pick up Jim's cup, which is not Jim's cup as we know it. Sidebar, not Jim's cup. It has a yellow stripe on it. It is a different shaped mug. I mean, it's still a classic mug, but it's not the simple jim mug that we have known as jim's mug there's an entire open on jim's mug and this is not jim's mug there's also some weird sort of price tag on the bottom when it breaks yes i'm wondering if the storyline came about because they actually broke they broke jim's mug i think maybe they broke because here's something else as well because it was filmed out of order Mm -hmm. in the finale jim's got his mug back exactly no yellow line exactly i was well also because Lauren was very sweet recently and, and gave me a Jim slash Jesse mug. So I know very much how what this is supposed to look like. And yes, everyone, I, I will be Instagramming this. And anyway, so the, the imposter that is Jim's mug in this episode is picked up by Frank. He then, again, absent-minded is the key, the, the term of this opening, fills it with coffee, 
then without thinking about it, picks up a tea bag and starts dunking the tea bag in the coffee. Doesn't it have like two tea bags. It's two tea to bags. It? It's like hanging off. He also, even if he was intending to make tea, he's not letting it steep. He immediately starts drinking it. And then Joe does this great moment of he drinks it and he pauses and you think for a second maybe he realizes what he's done. And he just does this kind of like head swoon, like, huh thing and just continues to drink. With oversized gulps. Yes, they're huge gulps of this coffee that now has a teabag also steeping in it. And in this moment, Miles enters and we get our first lines. And Miles approaches the table, comments on how every morning there is a meeting at 10 o'clock in the morning. Everyone knows this. We do this every morning. And yet no one is here. This is true, Miles. This is when I'm like, oh, there's my Miles. Yeah, the last three episodes are really sort of Miles Prime. He's here. And then at the beginning of season two, it's like, hello, boy. I've missed you. I've missed you so much. Welcome back. I was like, oh, Miles, there you are. Okay. And he goes, well, at least, Frank, at least you're here. At least someone appreciates this. And Frank is just taking off toward, I think what we've established is his office. Towards his office, Towards his I office think. to yeah. the mm-hmm. behind there. Miles is concerned and asks... What what's wrong with you? And he says, "No, I'm I'm fine, Miles." And he goes, "That's Jim's cup," which Frank doesn't quite register because he then proceeds to tell Miles that, "Oh no, he just he got a call and it's from his dentist. He has an appointment." And when he heard that he had the appointment, all the blood left his head. Which, Frank, I get you. I hate the dentist. I just had a dentist appointment. It brings out this side of me that is so fearful and small. And I understand what he's going through right now. <laughs> I don't know what happened to me at some point, but I, there's, it's, I feel like the biggest cliche in the world that walking into a dentist's office makes me a child. Well, you are a walking sitcom. I am. Yeah. It's my situation and it is comedic. <laughs> so <laughs> at this moment, Corky enters and all I write is indigo is her color. Mm-hmm. They're really starting to hit those nice cool tones on her. They really get it. She enters and she is swinging her briefcase around, talking about how, oh, she knew she didn't have to get here early because nobody else is here. And then she sees Frank and she goes, Frank, how come your head's all white? It's a very clever bald joke, which I appreciate so much. (laughs) It's not, you look pale, why is your head all white? Then gasps, oh my God, isn't that Jim's cup? I love this setup that everyone is just agog that he could ever use Jim's mug because that is something that you cannot do. Jim is so fastidious about everything and that mug is important to him and it's such a setup within the reactions people have. Well, and here's the thing. I'm fascinated because I'm writing this down as I'm watching it Mm -hmm. and they all call it the cup. It's not Jim's mug, which I find very interesting. But all of them have this like all caps like, oh my God, isn't that Jim's cup? But it doesn't register yet to Frank what is going on because he's still in this this traumatic haze that is the dentist called. I and really thought it was over a woman. I did. I did. And especially this is a man's world. I, I'm. Well, it's, I guess he's got to be a man. I know he's got to yeah. man up, but I also hate that phrase and that concept. I say woman up. Well, you know, it's another uh, welcome to a B plot, everybody. Exactly. Oh, it's one of my favorite B plots, though, of this season. It makes me really happy. It's, what happens later? It's great. It just feels different for the show, as we no, mentioned. Exactly. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's great, but it feels like, oh, this is not what I'm used to. We don't do B plots. No. Really? Yeah. Um, but I feel like they're trying stuff out because we also mm-hmm. have a B plot later on in the finale as well. We do. But that's mm-hmm. kind of the last, I feel. Yeah, this is one of the um, what happens physically to Frank later feels very classic sitcom y B plot. And something that Steve Peterman uh, emailed us when we were talking about mm-hmm. the B-plot previously in an episode that he wrote, 
uh, my dinner with Einstein. They wanted something more for Jim to do. Mm -hmm. And so I see that because so far in the B-plots that we're going to have through the end of season one, which is coming up very soon, mm -hmm. uh, it's all Jim. Yeah. They want to give him something to do, which I completely understand. Which I appreciate. Absolutely. So at this moment, Miles decides to inform Corky that, um, you know, tardiness is a sign of hostility and he doesn't deserve this kind of treatment. I wrote that down. I love that. <laughs> I love the tart. I feel like everyone in the workforce needs to have a conversation about tardiness as hostility. <laughs> it feels very, very appropriate to bring up mm -hmm. often. And I wrote in all caps, Jim enters in the best pose. So Jim comes walking out saying, sorry, I'm late, everyone, although it looks like I haven't missed anything. And he's doing this walk from the back behind the elevators of his arms are straight. He's straight armed, delicately holding his the ends of his suit jacket away from his crotch as yes. he walks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he says, um, I leaned against the sink in the men's room and I got the front of my pants all wet. And then he proceeds to unbutton and open in a very theatrical <laughs> and says, tell me if it looks funny. And he does this thing where he stands there and he raises his chin like I can take it. To which Corky and Miles say, fine, no, they can't even tell. And as he walks by, they do this great thing. That's, it's the first time I've seen Corky and Miles have it's a, a great, rapport. It's a great moment. It's a great moment because Corky sticks her tongue out and Miles like bares his teeth in a grimace. And it's one of the first times I was like, oh, there's Corky and Miles. It's the first time I really see them, mm -hmm. which made me really happy. At that moment, the elevator dings again and Murphy comes in and she is walking very slowly with a um, very old couple. Are we saying 80s, you think? I think they look about, I would say, 70s, 80s. I'm trying to think in terms of what looked old in the 1980s. That's why I'm confused. Exactly. Because they could be 65. <laughs> exactly. But to, the way that they're walking, the way they're acting is a very, it's like a caricature of the elderly, of, yes. of, the, of that that iconic elderly couple that is kind of ageless they just they are seniors they are your grandparents and they feel very universally senior yeah and this particularly is so interesting because today you know 70 is the new 50 sure is right and it's so different that i really was like how are they how old are they supposed to be? I mean it's a, it's to the same point that we were just talking uh on facebook about the Downton Abbey movie yes. and how old Maggie Smith is going to have to be. And I always think in terms of when you age people or try to impart age in a character, I think about Maggie Smith being aged for Hook versus mm. what Ma Maggie Smith actually looks like now. And she's now, I think, older than she was supposed to be in that movie, but she looks better. Mm -hmm. So it's always interesting. Now, this is actually an, an older couple who are playing grandparents. But to answer your question, I don't know. I think it's just they're supposed to be iconically grandparent. I'm going to say 80s. And to me, I mean, my grandparents would be in their 90s right now. Mine but too, yeah. for me, looking at what they are, I would say that I would say 70s or 80s. Okay. Late 70s. You mean. Based on Howie's age. Let's do this. Based on oh, Howie's okay. age. All right. I can't, I can't even place Howie, though. Not really. No. Because... No. Because I cannot not see it through a modern lens. Because think about it. If Howie is in his 30s. Okay. His parents, we have to assume, are probably going to have him in their, in their 20s. Sure. So they would be in their 50s. I'm going to say these guys. Yeah. I would say, honestly, probably 70s. Because if you're going back generationally, they're having they were having kids younger and younger. Oh, God. Let's do these maths. I mean, the Golden Girls were, like, in their so 60s. Young. So young. Insane. 
go get retired. Oh my god. Well, 65. I think this is a very important tangent that we just had. It is because ageism can, is a real thing. It is, and it connects to the revival right now. Exactly. Because to say that they're in their seventies and then look at look at the cast. The cast. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, you know, Oprah Winfrey said, if I may quote the Oprah, you can always quote the Oprah. That hair dye goes a long way. It does. Also, that, having being able to hire fitness and nutrition experts sure also goes a lot a long way but i i think that's why i would actually try not to pick their age because i think the point is that these Mm. two people are supposed to whoever is watching says those are my grandparents whatever age they are the people in their 40s see them and say their see their grandparents the people in their teens see them and see their grandparents i mean harrison ford just turned 76 and it's a really good-looking 76. Very good-looking yes. 76. Good job there. Good job, everyone. Back to the story. Back to the story. So Miles is trying to hurry Murphy up, and she says, Miles, just in a second, I we were just in a car accident. And at that moment, the entire gang swoops past Murphy to find out if the old people are okay. <laughs> the take that she does, Candace Bergen. <laughs> is so offended. She, she's so offended, and she follows them like with her head, and it... Candace Bergen is so great at this kind of stuff, but it's so great the way that she just kind of clocks everybody. Like, oh my God. Also, she looks great. She's got the gold clip uh, or bracelet again, which Mm -hmm. I really love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this sort of uh, neutral tones. Yeah, with the the tie. I love it. Love it. Um, So I do appreciate that no one's worried if Murphy's going to make it. It's great. It's great. Which which is fair. If Murphy says, if Murphy's walking fine and she's behind this old couple and she says they were in a car accident, I'm way more worried about the elderly couple. Yeah. She's like, no, it was fine. It was just a fender bender. A cat ran into the street and Mr. Bickner had me hit his brakes and it was too late and I ended up running into him. And she tries to introduce them to the gang and they say, oh, no, no, we know who you are. We watch you on television every week. To Jim, they say, you're the one with the lovely voice. To Frank, you're always doing something dangerous. And they get to Corky and they say, you're the other blonde. And then they turn and they see Miles standing there expectantly and they go, we don't know you. I love that they say... You're the other blonde one. It makes her so insignificant. To Corky's pageant training, she's very gracious about it. Mm-hmm. They say they don't know Miles, and Miles introduces himself very proudly. And Mrs. Bickner, who we find out her name is Myrna, says, how nice. And she turns to Mr. Bickner and goes, he's not on the show. <laughs> and I wrote, Mr. Bickner's face at that, I don't know what it is. He does this, like this very comical facial reaction, but I don't know what's behind it, like what his actual feeling is in this moment. He looks horrified and confused and slightly scared. (laughs) Eric Christmas is a bit of a comic genius. He's a genius. I I have no idea what it was, but I laughed so hard. He is the old man from our childhood. Yes. He was in everything, played a lot of judges. That makes sense. Or like old man, a lot of reverends and fathers. He's a very diminutive stature. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I think adds to the comicness. It He's does. short and old, mm-hmm. and and I'm sure of his generation mm-hmm. at that time in the kind of roles that he would take. Mm-hmm. The there aren't a lot of people who are going up for those parts. Mm-hmm. So it's not that he's just great. It's yep. that he's just booking them all. He's booking everything. Um, there's a couple people in this episode that are, are like that, where I'm like, mm-hmm. good, good job knowing your type. Yes. And cashing in on those roles because mm-hmm. you are consistently working. So Murphy ushers them into her office to have a sit down. It's all going to be okay. And she comes back on saying that she was stuck behind them for six blocks, moving at what she says is parade speed, which is such a, a great piece of writing because I immediately know how slow that is. And she says she told herself it was fine. She remained calm. And then all of a sudden he slams on the brake. And she said, it wasn't that big of a deal. And one of my favorite quotes from this episode is... Oh, me too. I could have fixed it with a tire iron, but Bob was afraid I'd damage my reproductive organs. 
It's the delivery, too. Oh, God, it's so good. It's so... It tells me everything I need to know about what generation he's from. Mm-hmm. And that he means well, but he's so wrong. <laughs> Can I just take this moment mm-hmm. to say something that... Is it about your reproductive organs? No, but you'd think it would be, right? I would, yeah. Considering what we've, we've talked about yeah. before on the show. Sure. But... Uh, I know now that that's not what's happening, but I realized watching this episode as a child, and I didn't watch this episode a lot, mm-hmm. but I watched it in reruns and I'd have them all recorded. I was convinced that they were grifters, the Bickners. Really? This is a huge con, and they do this all the time. That I was, think I would have thought that had I not met Howie. Perhaps, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, again, watching it this time, I see that it doesn't actually fit into what is happening mm-hmm. in the episode at all. But I see that. But that was what I was convinced as a child, that mm-hmm. they were grifters and that they were doing this con to mm-hmm. a bunch of people. Because they're so cute. Exactly. And you find out they're actually evil under all that. They know all the cases. They mm-hmm. later on bring up the, you know, the alcoholism. Yep. Well, you know, I can point them out as we go along, but I, I thought it was pretty hilarious when I watched it and went, they're not grifters. Well, here's the interesting thing. I forgot that we meet Howie. In this episode. Mm-hmm. So when I first started rewatching this episode, I was like, oh, they're grifters. Like my brain immediately was con people. Mm-hmm. But and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but when I met Howie, he has this quality that I just one hundred percent believe that this is just the dynamic and that they all are actually kind of that hapless. I just thought of something that's totally not true. What if Howie's an actor? No, I thought about that too. <laughs> oh, you did. But I think he's it, no he's not. The actor who plays him, who we'll talk about, yeah. plays him so well and yeah. so sincere yeah. that in the world of Murphy Brown that we see, I don't believe anyone is that good at acting. No, it's the thing. <laughs> it doesn't fit into the script at all. No, and I but s- I believe that why you would yeah, think that. And it, but it clouds when I watch it because mm, I still sometimes... You don't trust him. I don't. And I still sometimes like go into that. And then there are certain moments where I go, no, that's not what the script is saying at all, Lauren. I, know. I just chi- want to believe that they are. It's a childhood thing that I like made up in my head. Because again, like I didn't see this episode until syndication. I like it. It's dark. It's, Thank you. It's the episode it would be now. Headcanon accepted. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. They come back out of the office and they're ready to go. And they're being so sweet. I wrote cutest old couple ever. Oh, I've. Uh, we forgot to mention, I don't know what you think, but one of my favorite things when he goes into the office, Mr. Bickner, is, is he goes, I'm in charge of the chamois. Oh, yes, I, um, I forgot to write that down. So they ha- they have to call um, the church car wash that they're heading off to because he's in charge of the chamois. And they need to make sure that people know that the chamois are still coming. And I will not answer if anybody asks me what a chamois is. You should know what that is. I'm just kidding. Well, if you want to know, we just tweet us. We'll tell you what a chamois is. So... As they're on their way out, everyone kind of follows them to the to the elevator, and they're the cutest in the world, and they're thanking everybody, and they have these sweet little voices. Um, I wrote later that Myrna's voice, or that Myrna's voice is just so gentle and smooth. It's like honey, and it's sweet, but not in an overly saccharine kind of way. Mm-hmm. It just... I have I assume in my brain, in my own headcanon, that she has voiced every sweet mother grandmother animated character i've ever seen in my life like she has the most gentle sweet maternal voice and they're just talking and they're sweet and he has a sweet little voice and he makes his own little pun saying he's glad they ran into each other and then everyone goes he, he, he. he's, he's a, so proud of himself laugh his little he, he, he uh laugh and they everyone just loves them and the, the 
elevator door is shut on them being all happy and the audience applauds yeah. for their exit. Also, I think it's Myrna, right? She calls Murphy a nice girl. Yes, they keep calling her a nice woman girl. girl. Later, they call her sweetheart. Mm-hmm. We just love her. And everyone heads back, and they're talking about how sweet they are, and they head back to the table to finally have their meeting. And you see Jim at the coffee stand looking around, and he just says, it's always right here. Mm-hmm. And he looks very concerned. Frank has sat back down at his spot on screen right, and he's put the coffee cup at as I want to say, downstage, but at the front of the table so we can all see it. And Murphy is looking at him and says, Frank, isn't that Jim's cup? I just wrote, Jim's face, Frank's face, as they lock. And Frank looks horrified. And he does a little eh, shrug and reaches clearly Aww. to grab it and give it back to him because he realizes he's done it wrong. And he does the great actor thing of hitting it with the back of his hand. And it goes and smashes. And I tried to get a screen cap of everyone's face in this moment. It's great. It's very cartoonish. And I love it. So everyone just looks horrified. Murphy does this great thing that I do that I discovered when I did looked at pictures of me on roller coasters, where as I start to panic, my whole face pulls backwards toward my ears at first in shock. And she does this like <gasps> thing. And Frank looks like he's going to just give up and die right there. Smash goes the cup. Everyone stares. Miles says, well, it's enough work for now. Let's take five. Everyone scatters, leaving Frank staring at Jim, who is just looming over him like doom. He looks incensed. Oh, he's scary, Jim. Mm-hmm. He's scary, Jim. And I, I understand. I wouldn't touch his mug. So we jump a little ahead. It's later. We're in the bullpen. It's a new day. Murphy is wearing... Almost the same outfit that we've seen her in, I think, in tan, perhaps. Mm-hmm. This is white. Mm-hmm. Man, you got to not be a klutz to wear white. I cannot wear white. I wrote that the, the pearl in the middle of her gold earrings mm. matches her blouse tone. Ooh. It's a really good combo. Well, I love the brown belt. Yeah. It's a little bit different than the other belt that we have. It's a very, it's a very luxe look. Mm-hmm. There's like this pearlish quality. And and as we mentioned before from Candace's biography, they would buy clothes in bulk. So mm-hmm. they obviously bought this and, you know, just mix matched like the belts, things like that. Uh, she's talking back to her office from the from the coffee area and she's talking about the cookies and how she could just eat a million of them and she's on her way back to her office and is stopped in her tracks as she sees who her new secretary is. And I wrote, Jesse's heart, Xena war cries for Robert. <laughs> I cheered out loud. I forgot that this was the episode where oh, Robert finally comes back. I thought it was a late... I For some reason, I thought it was season two. And our Robert is back. Our poor, anxiety-ridden, hapless Robert is back at the desk. She's like, Robert, what are you doing? Why do you do this to yourself? Why do you think it's a good idea to come back here? And Robert says, no, no, he is actually... He's better. He's been in therapy. He's uh, no longer afraid of things. And one of my favorite things in the list of things that he says that is no longer, he says that there are no more voices telling me to dress up like you. Was he single white femaleing Murphy Brown? I think so. I think Robert was in a bad, bad place. Yes, I'm worried (laughs) that they gave him this job again. However, what we see is that Robert is put together quite nicely. Yes, he is. He has a great little outfit. He's got a good little bow tie. He's got a smart shirt. And his hair is parted and he looks good. I find it interesting that his hair looks this way and then Miles' hair starts looking similar. I feel like he went to Robert's hairdresser. But Murphy's like, are you sure that you're, do you really think you're prepared for this? And she starts listening. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need these things send out. And his only response is domestic or international. And I wrote, he's so competent now. Yes. And she goes, okay. And decides to give him the, the job. He is so put together and so like ready to go toe to toe to her in a truly confident way. And I'm just so happy for Robert because Charlie Lang is that. He has a little arc there. 
It's amazing. Rule of Threes. He's got his third episode. A little, little bit of an arc. They're so good. To, they're so good to Charlie. They're so good to Robert. Mm-hmm. She heads into her office, and that's where Miles comes in after her. And he comes in, and he's asking her how she's doing. We see that her Dora says, the dartboard says, I heart Orin Hatch, which, which we'll need to talk about. <laughs> So Miles comes into her office right behind her, and he is coming to say, oh, so just so you know, uh, we are all here to support you. We we are behind you 100%. Break. Murphy's a little confused, and she asks, what's going on? He goes, oh, you don't know? <laughs> I love it. It goes, nothing. And then it's like Gran is gargling water in the back of yeah. his throat. And I was like, I love when he does this. Yes. And he's like, uh, so you know that nice couple that's, that's been sending you cookies? Yeah. Um, and invited everyone over for dinner and charades next Thursday? Yeah. They're suing you for $1.5 million. <laughs> Gotta go. <laughs> That's a terrible impression for Sean. It's so good. It's so Muppet-like. It yes. makes me so happy. This whole episode, I was like, this reminds me, why the hell does Grant Shaw not have an Emmy? I know. He's so good in this. It's really ridiculous. So... At the end of this little section, we just see on his way out in Murphy's shock at this news that on the dartboard says, I heart Orrin Hatch, who is a, you know, rather well-known senator. Uh, He was the uh, United States senator from Utah for, oh, let's see, he assumed office in 77. Yeah. He's been around for a hot second. he just retired this year. He just retired this year. Um, Now, a lot of people may actually remember him most recently from a very awkward Senate hearing with Mark Zuckerberg in which um, poor Orrin was just trying to understand how Facebook works. However, prior to that, Orrin has a very illustrious career. He's been around for a long time. He also guests on Murphy at one point. Yeah, so he will come on as a cameo. And, you know, Orrin Hatch helped get the Americans for Disabilities Act passed. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that this dartboard is... I don't think Murphy loves Orrin Hatch. Nope, I don't think so. He's a Republican. Like, one of the first things I remember hearing about Orrin Hatch was that he was a leading figure... Um, during the 90s for the anti-terrorism yes. bills. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is pre-that. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he is just a, he's a notable Republican. Yeah, I tried to Google the year and try to see if something specific had happened with Orrin Hatch, but I couldn't find it. So I don't know if we're missing something that it's specifically in reference to or just him in general. One of the more negative things that I know about Mr. Hatch, uh, Senator Hatch, is that he's um, always been behind the um, anti-abortion platforms. Yes. Um, he's definitely, I mean, he's he's from Utah, so he's definitely supporting a large uh, conservative Christian and Mormon population and has truthfully represented them for over 30 years. That was what I felt probably was why he was on the dartboard. Yeah, me too. That's what yeah. I assumed. Um, the generalness of his uh, mystique. Exactly. I, I think especially at that point, I think that... Um, Orrin Hatch is a good example of there can be people on both sides of the aisle that do things that we don't like and do things that we do support. He has done some good things that I that I appreciate, but I also know, especially at this time, that I knew him for more conservative leanings. Now, I would like to point out yes. that uh, Murphy's wall of magazine covers mm-hmm. has grown. It's changed. It has. One particularly is one that we talked about in a previous episode, yes. which finally caught up to the you know, filming of the show, Mm -hmm. is the Newsweek cover that we talked about came out the week that Moscow on the Potomac came out. And you can actually find that um, on the the website page for Moscow on the Potomac. Uh, We have that Newsweek cover posted as well. Yeah. And then next to it, or I guess sort of above it, is an 
Emmy magazine. Now, I've never seen that cover in person, but I'm going to guess since it's new that, that it actually is real. Mm-hmm. And then I also noticed that there are more mad magazines on sort of like the left, our left, I should say, not mm-hmm. Murphy's left. And then eventually that'll be filled up with real magazines. Yes. And, and they start to slowly take off the fake ones, which I yeah. think is great. I love that they do that. Yeah. It's really fun. So we were at Phil's, and this feels the way that it sort of fades in in the middle just like with Kyle, mm-hmm. when I found that picture on the DVD and was like, oh, I think there was something before this. Hey, and another Cor- Russ Woody episode. Corby agreed. I think that this scene got cut. Mm-hmm. It just, we don't usually start in the middle of something. Usually yes. people enter. So that was something interesting. So something must have, you know, been running too long, you know. Yeah, it made me kind of miss close the door. Yeah, I don't think, I think it's gone. I know it's gone. Sorry, I just, Jesse. I enjoyed it. Do we need to sit Shiva for close the door, Jesse? Um, am I allowed to as a non-Jew? Oh, absolutely. Okay, I will we'll cover all the mirrors, Shiva. though. Oh, that's a thing, yeah, isn't it? Lots of food. That's what I know about Shiva, is helping people prepare food. Now, if you were really religious, you would sit on a box. And you know what? Since you're moving... I have many boxes. There we you go. could start shivaing all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to every... Every Jewish person listening to Good night and good luck, everyone. Anywho. So Murphy has taken the Bicknurs to Phil's. Probably not a wise choice. Later on, we'll find out why. Yep. She wanted to talk to them without the lawyers. You know, she's, she's concerned that someone might be taking advantage of them. You know, they say that, no, Howie, you know, he's not just their lawyer, but he's their grandson. Howie. So Howie wouldn't do that to no. them. Um, they say not to worry. You know, she wouldn't have to pay a thing. The insurance will. And they wouldn't do it if it was Murphy's money. They, they, they wouldn't do that. No, they're too nice for that. No, they're too nice for that. Uh, Murphy says that ins- you know, insurance is for people who really need it. And they confess that they are suing for loss of consortium. Consortium. That's how you say it, right? Yeah, Mr. as Mr. Bickner puts it, he's unable to uphold his conjugal duties. Because every time he tries, he sees Murphy's face in his rearview mirror. Isn't it her white sedan? He just says a white car. A white car. But here's the thing. Pretty sure that Murphy has a white Porsche. Yeah. I don't think they ever call it a white Porsche, but they definitely reference she has a white car. Mm -hmm. And they reference separately that she has a Porsche. Now, I looked up 1988-type Porsches, Mm -hmm. and they're not as flashy as I remember, but it's definitely a Porsche. I could see Murphy in that car. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, I could see her in a flashy car, too, but... I was thinking, like, oh, you park it, you know, no, it's, like in it's, D.C. It's nice and practical, but it's nice. It's nice, yeah. Not like a Lamborghini. No. Yeah. Um, also, just for fun, I um, have a link to the AmericanBar.org about loss of consortium and when you should yes. bring the claim. There's a lot of legalese in this, so I'm just not going to read that. Like, do you have to wait a certain but, amount of time that you can't get it up? Well, this was February, of, January, February of 2010. Okay. And Patricia Zimmer here says that loss of consortium is a cause of action that is available to family members of a person injured or killed by the wrongful acts of another. Um, and it's a there's a there's stuff about evaluating the case, preparing the case, prosecuting the claim. I I will be happy to link this article. Wow. But um, I will say that I looked up the definition of consortium please jesse and i specifically went by the because there's a there's a non-relationship the legal definition the law definition if you will is the right of association and companionship with one's husband or wife Hmm, that makes sense so 
they don't say the sexy times, but they mean the sexy times. Oh, they totally mean the sexy times. Conjugal, man. Yeah. Now, the look on Candace Bergen's face, <laughs> again, another take, because <laughs> it's funny. Old people are having sex. Listen, there has become, and I'm sure it's always been a thing, but we know more about it now, mm-hmm. of venereal diseases in retirement Yes. Homes. Yes. No one can get pregnant. I get it. I Go get for it. I totally rampant. get it. I get it. Also, I, as someone who is currently young, mm-hmm. but plans to be a senior citizen someday, okay. I encourage more representation of sexual health as we age there is not enough of it Mm -mm. it's often a punchline yes and i appreciate that this is a punchline but they also don't back down from it no um i love that we have two different times where somebody else is really impressed by this information and it's two men who could be the ones who be the most uh basic about it but i love that they're inspired and i it just reminds me the first time that i heard in entertainment a joke about senior sexual health and uh, an activity, which was in Everybody Loves Raymond. Raymond and Deborah are having difficulty. And then we end up finding out through conversation that his parents, somehow I remember Doris having a line about how regularly they still do. And it's Deborah who realizes that she's just been assuming that later on in her marriage, that you just don't do it as much. Mm -hmm. And you find out that Raymond's parents are like, regularly knocking boots Mm -hmm. and i remember as even as a probably i was probably a tween and i was uncomfortable watching this happen being like good oh that's good to hear like i I think the the general entertainment idea that you know you get older in your marriage and you just accept that's not happening as much i i think it's often a commonly comes from the idea of like you know infatuation fades and you guys learn how to live together and it's Mm -hmm. not that that same spark that you had at the beginning but i I appreciate when we have the opportunities to comment on it in a way that doesn't say that we're swinging the pendulum in the opposite direction and you just become roommates. Yeah, I mean, the idea that you are no longer a vital human being... With the same needs you've always yeah, needed? ...is something that has been rampant in American culture. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not a culture that reveres our learned older... Our elders. Our elders, yes, yeah. which I never understood. I don't, and I I always think of things in terms of... I intend to be in that position later. So why would I, even though I am not in that position currently, Mm -hmm. wouldn't I want to be considered viable and a human being and have, like when I look at um, the issues that come up about elder abuse or just even the way that our elders are represented in the media or not, Mm -hmm. not respected the way they should be, it just, it makes me concerned about my future. And I feel like the sooner that we change our present the better our future is going to be well yeah and i just appreciate that they have a healthy sex life and they deserve a healthy sex life i agree murphy asks if it's really worth 1.5 million and myrna goes you don't know bob oh it gets a big laugh too i love them so pretty much is it this is the lottery to them and this is going to help them travel and decorate their house and they are greedy yeah they are this is where i where i understand the the grifter assumption because they're already spending that money yeah grifters they're grifters so next we cut to the bullpen. Corky's on the phone with, we assume, Frank, who is obviously high on some sort of painkillers or or maybe the... Laughing I mean, gas? I was going to say laughing gas, but then I wasn't sure because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Have you been on laughing gas before? So I used to always have to have it because I was so anxious going to the dentist okay. that I always had laughing gas no matter what happened. So, so let me ask you then, because I've only had it once. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. 
It's great. At the very I'm end, so much fun on at Latvia. the very end of it, I remember thinking, "Oh, this is why people do drugs." <laughs> but then it was over because it was ending. But because I had all of my wisdom teeth mm-hmm. taken out at once, it was fun for you. Oh, it was a joy mm-hmm. during my last couple weeks of grad school, and I used all of my sick days to work on my thesis. No, Lauren. I sat in the back of the class with chipmunk cheeks. It was terrible. Oh, I want to go fix that for you. Yeah, it was yeah. bad. One of my teachers didn't know what happened at one point, and he saw me in the hallway, like, fanning myself. Mm-hmm. And he went, do you have the vapors? <laughs> I've got the vapors. Like I was in a Tennessee Williams play. I love it. But anyway, so they asked me which I wanted, and they said the laughing gas was what I should do because it would wear off faster. I was going to say, it doesn't last. Uh, laughing gas does not linger. No, that, because my issue was, I got to study. Yeah. I have finals coming up. Well, that's the thing is that laughing gas, that's why you have the hose that goes over your face and stays there. Because mm-hmm. they can't just give you a shot of it mm-hmm. and then you keep going. Yeah. It's not like at, in the painting scene in Batman where he has a little transportational and he like huffs it and then dances around for a while. Like you need to keep it there for it to be working. Okay. That makes sense. You're welcome. So I think we can assume later it's the painkillers. Oh, it's definitely the painkillers. Okay. Yeah. He's not doing so well. He's not. Um, He doesn't know how to spell his own name. I also have to say, Corky's in a very Murphy outfit. Is she? Well, she's in a red blazer. She's got a white top and a black skirt. Okay. And it just like, it was like Murphy colors on Corky. Yeah. She goes, Frank, honey, it's spelled just like it sounds, Fontana. She's so understanding and patient with him. Yeah, she's so sweet. And I I hate to say this in the sense because I hate this, oh, you're a woman, you'll be a Mm -hmm. good mother kind of thing. She's being very maternal. She's being very maternal. Thank you. But it's in the same way we say, oh, Frank would be a great father. Yeah. I go, oh, she's she's very patient Parental. Parental. There you go. That's better. And, oh, by the way, also, is Frank wants to drive home, but she has to let him, remind him a couple of times, actually, right? That he can't drive home because she drove him there. Yes. You know, and she'll be, she'll be there to pick him up soon. Yeah, it's very like, okay, honey. Yeah. Murphy arrives. <laughs> she approaches Robert, and she's been listening to a call, call-in show in the car, whether Murphy Brown should have her license revoked. 600 paid 50 cents apiece to vote against her. Yeah, I love that 600 people paid 50 cents. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Robert says that the phone has been ringing off the hook. I wrote, Robert has it covered like a boss. I wrote, he's so competent that the people cheer. They do. They literally cheer. After he says that, I did this, blah, 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 I passed these onto your PR, and these I took the liberty of calling the police. And the people cheer. Again, this feels like final episode. It does. It's like, Robert did it. And maybe it wasn't their thought. Maybe it's the audience's fault. I know. The they o- wouldn't know it's not the final episode. I know, the audience is so in it. It's a very like, he does this, breakfast club arm, the audience cheers. It's just, Rob. it's Robert's final episode. He hands her her mail. He gives her hot tea. Oh, she- that's the thing when he goes, and hot tea. Like he does a whole yeah. like, hot tea. So Miles enters Murphy's office, and I wrote, with his hair looking like a cartoon character playing Alex P. Keaton. It is ridiculous. It's crazy, man. I, and what's so funny, it's so put together, it looks insane. He looks like a child. He looks like he's trying to, he's doing his best gym cosplay, and it looks wrong on him. I also kind of like the way Candace plays it, is that she doesn't make fun of him at first. She's just like, why is your hair weird? Yeah. Do you sleep in a hat? Like, it's just, it's just very matter of fact, and I kind of appreciate it. Also interesting enough is that we we do see, which we we see a lot more later, but there's a paintbrush mm-hmm. with, it's like, very 90s, like, it's up in the air, man, look at this. They believe that that was a gift from Eldon. Mm-hmm. It's also a flamingo and a palm tree. Yes. Yeah. 
Miles has the paper and he isn't happy. The world globe says, stay out of her way if you're old and gray. And then he obsesses with this hair. Well, what's wrong with my hair? It's just flat. It's weird. <laughs> she, Murphy hates the picture. She goes, you yell at a parking attendant one time. Which is the kind of moments that make me think today would be filmed and put on the yeah, internet. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Miles thinks that she should talk to, talk to their lawyers. Miles feels bad. You know, they're really sweet people. And finally, Miles just can't stand it anymore about the hair. You know, it's the last time he goes to Ted Koppel's barber. <laughs> and then we find ourselves looking at a, a new location, which is outside an office building. And we find out it's the law offices of Murphy's attorneys. I called it lawyer office place thing. Lawyer office place thing. And we start, we're in a, a conference room, and we see Mr. and Mrs. Bickner coming in, and they start, they come in with a, hello, sweetheart, oh, you look good. Like, just being very grandparenty to them. And in behind them comes Howie. 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 Let's give Howie's full name, though. Howie's the best. Howie Suttoff? 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 Howie Suttoff. Who is named after a lawyer friend of Russ's. Yes, which I appreciate. It's, it's a lawyer name. Howard Suttoff. 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 You're both correct. Yes. Played by Michael G. Haggerty. He Ooh. is currently in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yes. And he is a boss at playing these characters. I love him so much. Also, kudos to him for being in two different Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, one as a normal humanoid and one as a Klingon. He's also been in almost all of Bonnie Hunt's sitcoms. Yes, he has. Because of the Midwestern accent. And was in So I Married an Axe Murderer, one of the best mm-hmm. movies of the 90s. So Wayne's good. World, Overboard. He's, I wrote, he's that guy! Well, and he's Mr. Trigger. He's Trigger in Friends. Yes, that's right. That's how is. I first recognized course, him. Yeah, he totally is. I was like, he's Trigger! <laughs> and what I appreciate is he comes in... And he's like, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm Howie. Instead of, I'm, I'm representing Grampy. I, Mr. and Mrs. Bickner. <laughs> he starts saying Grampy. Um, and what I wrote is that he is so dopey, hapless, well-meaning. He reminds me of John Candy in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yes! Oh, yes! That's exactly what he reminds me of. It's that thing of, like, I should be annoyed by you, but I can't because you're so sincerely you. And I feel like, because John Candy was Canadian, right? Yep. And They have and that same lovely yes, that it, middle America energy. Yeah, even though he's not American, but yep. it's that same thing. Mid-continent yeah. energy. There you go. I just I saw him and I was like, oh my gosh, why did you never play John Candy's brother? Mm, well, it's, maybe there was no time. Exactly. But it, the energy is the same thing. I watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles every Thanksgiving. I love it so much. And I'm, I was immediately endeared to him. And that's why I believe they're not grifters, because he would never do that. <laughs> they're grifters, Jesse. We are both coloring this with incorrect they're references. Grifters. They're going to do it again. We both have they're childhood gonna... opinions that are completely coloring this episode. <laughs> the Murphy Brown podcast, Childhood Opinions. <laughs> childhood. That's just pretty much like our sub thing. <laughs> our tagline. That's our tagline. Yes. Perfect. Murphy introduces them to her team of lawyers and the, her lawyer and all of the associates. Only one talks. Only one talks. I talk. The I, main lawyer. I wrote every time I wrote talking lawyer. Talking lawyer. Talking lawyer. Well, he's the one with the name. And so they all sit down at this big round table and Myrna comments, says, oh, well, she she didn't realize there'd be so many of you. She made cookies. She hopes there's enough for everyone. Of course, everyone dives right in because they're so good. I find the seating arrangement interesting because you have all the lawyers, Mr. and Mrs. Bickner together, and then you have talking lawyer, Howie, Murphy. Oh, Howie sat in the wrong place. He sat in the wrong place, and it's the best, because he does this thing as before they start, where he just leans into her, which is straight up John Candy from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and says, I stood behind you in a bank once. 
You probably don't remember. I love this because <laughs> that's so what people do. It is. Like, you probably don't remember. <laughs> She's like, they start talking and Howie seems very hapless and talking lawyer brings up, you know, this is probably a very key lawsuit. You know, you probably, we should really talk about settling something or you're not going through with it. And Mr. and Mrs. Bickner proceed to say, oh no, they have precedence. Do you, you tell them Howie. And Howie brings out some research. This is the thing. Again, the whole grifter vibe. She knows a lot about cases. She knows what precedence means. I mean, Grant, I also don't want to say, let's not assume that just because people are old that they're stupid and they don't know the certain terms. No, no, no. And she could have done research. Listen, she's good. But But she's leading this charge. Grifters. But also, I see them doing the thing where they're being really encouraging their grandson like come on howie you do it like that's true yeah they're, they're encouraging their sweet but grandson. then we get to but what i love is that <laughs> howie's giving the first case where somebody got over a million dollars and he reads out the information i wrote howie's impressed by his own research <laughs> he's like oh that's a lot of money and talking lawyer proceeds to say um well unfortunately that actually doesn't set precedent because in that case the defendant was speeding which is not the right precedent for the case with Murphy. Mm-hmm. And I love that we get from Howie this great response, Raj. He's really supportive of Roger, the talking attorney's He's work. He's so excited to be here. He's just so happy to be at the table. Howie, for the defense? Howie's for everyone. Howie wants everyone to just feel good about what they mm-hmm. did today. Then he brings up another case. This one seems to actually be a bit more applicable. And then he, as he's talking about the loss of consortium, he leans into Murphy and says, can you believe my grandparents did it every day? And then Murphy does another take. Another take. And then this is the this is the grifter moment for me okay. with Myrna, where she says, How we don't forget there's something else as far as that case. Yes. And it's because it uh because it's a sud sucker, like Murphy. Where I audibly gasped because I haven't heard the term sud sucker well, it fits in a while. Them. Yeah. It does. It fits their their generation. And Murphy goes, Excuse me? Because everyone's a little shocked to hear that. And Bob helpfully says, It's kind of like a hooch hound. <laughs> And Murphy says, you know, this, this is unfair. You can't blame my alcoholism. I haven't had a drink in over a year. Yeah, she's and really upset by she's this. She's really upset by this. And understandably, she went to Betty Ford for Like, she's been very good, yeah. actually. And talking lawyer Roger says, yeah, you can't actually use that. She doesn't drink anymore. What I love is that Howie's really conversationally, like, having fun with this game. So he's, he's like, well, that's what I thought too, Rog. But people keep seeing her coming in and out of Phil's bar. So all I have to do is raise the doubt. And then you know how it goes. I'm always surprised <laughs> at this moment, considering how boisterous the audience was. Yeah. Didn't get some sort of gasp. Yes. Yeah. Or, or even like an uncomfortable... Or even a laugh, because we know that Murphy's not drinking. Yeah. But that's sort of like, oh, yeah, they kind of got her there. They have her. She goes in and out of a bar mm, every yeah. single day. I also want to just comment, because as much as I try to do what Michael Hegarty's doing with this character, mm-hmm. even the way I just read that has more of a manipulative tone than even he does. No, like no. The way he says, like, all I have to do is raise the doubt, he kind of giggles and goes, and... Well, you know how it goes. As if he's just commiserating with Raj. He's really good at his character type. <laughs> he's really good. It's really hard to do that. So he's just excited at, like, the nuance of of law and his opportunity he has here. The, Murphy's now had enough, and she calls him greedy little leeches. And she says, what are you trying to do? And what's it? I don't, I'm not following you anymore with this. These cookies that you're giving everybody, they must have a stick of butter in each of them. What are you trying to do? Trying to kill me? 
And they say, you know what, we really upset you right now, so we're just gonna go. And so they start heading on their way out with Howie, and she follows them, yelling at them on the way out to the hall, saying that there's something, she thinks there's something really sick about people who have sex every day, tells them to get themselves a hobby, and they're just taking off down the hall. And they seem relatively unruffled as well, which is the best part, they're just the sweetest. And she ends the scene by going, you Bickners. Bickners. Which, this entire rundown I have here. Mm-hmm. I write Bickner's with a capital B-I-C-N-E-R-S. Because of the way she says it the entire time. I need Bickner's to happen. I need this to become our new swear phrase. You're just calling everyone the Bickner's. I'm I'm in. Let's do it. Yes. We wouldn't have to bleep anything. No. Bickner's. You Bickner. You Bickner. I also love that we're learning that a, a phrase of Murphy's is I've had it. Yes. Like that. She like, like it, it takes a lot, you know, but she... She's done. She's done. And and she calls them greedy little leeches. Greedy little leeches, yeah. my I've favorite. I've had it with you. And that's a very it's a, a very Murphy phrase. So we we cut to the office bullpen. I literally went, I love Corky's colors. It's good. Purple and magenta. It's good. Mm. So she tells Jim that Frank is coming, you know, but she she wants she wants him to wait because she, he's on a lot of pain pills and he went against doctor's orders and she just really wants them to, you know, reconnect and, 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 and forgive each other, you can tell. And, and Frank enters, I wrote, looking like the Joker. <laughs> he does. That's what I wrote down too. Jim, 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 Jim. Jim. He's super high. He's, he's saying hi to the fellow office workers. Yes, he is. And people are very uncomfortable. I think he actually, he's hi. high, but enough to check someone out. Yes. Oh, yeah. He's not, he's not that high. Nope. So Frank was at home looking at a fish tank and thinking, <laughs> I wish I had a fish. This whole, Joe is great in this oh. whole scene. It just does not feel like Murphy Brown. No, it doesn't. Problem. It doesn't at all, but it's so funny. It's so good. So we went to the fish store. And he bought Jim a mug, which again is also not Jim's fish mug. Nope. It's it's the same design, but yep. the colors are all different. Oh, that fish mug. And I didn't remember until I, w- I was watching a later episode so that when I went to this one and I went, wait a second. That's not the mug. That's blue. Jim mug, mug is like a teal. Uh-huh. So it's the same exact mug, but just different colors. They didn't think we'd notice. They didn't know that 30 years later, there'd be a podcast. We would be watching They'd like be watching hawks. and would figure it out. <laughs> And, and, yeah. We are their worst nightmare. Well, obviously. <laughs> oh, can I please read Jim's response? Yes, please. Oh, darn it all. How can I stay mad at such a pathetic display? Thank you for the mug. And then... Jim's an old softy. He's an old softy. And, oh, darn it all. But and then he says something else. Yeah, so so he kind of hugs Jim so much that it's very uncomfortable. It's like in he's in kissing distance. Yeah, and he says he wants to vomit. And I paused it to type something as... Charles Kimbrough's head was just like wincing back. Oh, yeah. And it was so quick. It was like such a great reaction of just like, you're uncomfortable, but no! It's so theatrical. Yeah. It and, is, that is some stage work. And, and then uh, Corky and Jim, you know, sort of take him out very, very quickly. I think Frank is laughing a little bit. Sorry, mm-hmm. Joe. But it works because he's got the, maybe it's just because he's I grinning the whole time. Yeah, because he's stuck grinning. I really don't know the difference. And one of my favorite things is, oh, Judas Frank, use the mug. Yes. Though, I have to say, I paused it multiple times, and I have various forms. I wasn't sure if it was, don't shoot us, Frank. Like, don't shoot out your mouth, use the mug. I had, oh, Judas, Frank, don't, like, use it's the mug. It's gotta be Judas. I Don't you think? I don't know. Now I'm confused because I listened to it so many times. Judas Priest is definitely something that I could see Jim saying. Yes, absolutely. But I don't know, man. 
All I know is use the mug. It's a mystery. I, it's one of those things where it's like when you look at the word alligator too many times, it suddenly starts looking and sounding alien. At this point, I just know it's something Frank, use the mug. <laughs> Murphy enters dressed like Diane Keaton. About that. Jesse, would you like to comment on the outfit? Yes. So this is something that we've actually wanted, been looking for an opportunity to address. One of our great listeners reached out to us and brought something up that that is very important to us. As we talk a lot, we want to talk about representation and uh, respecting culture and the various issues that we have at our fingertips. And something that we haven't brought up is the appropriation of Native American culture and art, especially in the in the styles of the fashion of that time. And we have mentioned multiple times how much we like certain pieces she has that echo that culture. And so I just wanted to address a little bit the appropriation of indigenous people's art and culture over time, and then also a, a few things to look at that are still happening. As somebody who grew up in two different parts of the country that um, have high indigenous populations, where I come from in Minnesota, there are multiple reservations in the area. I remember when we would have crossover sports games with the kids from the reservations um, and growing up around and seeing a lot of times the negative um, connotations around that and hearing about the struggles that unfortunately our, our first people have have gone through and that um, have been subjected to. I was also fortunate enough to grow up in part of my life in Alaska and experience the cultures up there and see that firsthand and be welcomed into um, various ceremonies and experiences. And I think it's important, especially after what happened with Standing Rock and so on, which was very near where I grew up, mm-hmm. that we we keep going back to that. There's a lot of conversations about who has ownership of our land right now. Mm. And um, we keep forgetting that there's really only one group that can make that call right now. Yeah. And that's not the people who are yelling about immigrants. Anywho, so we use I, I use the term indigenous peoples. That's kind of a, a large reaching umbrella term. In the US, we use the term Native and Native American. The key is appreciate over appropriate. Native American cultures have been taken advantage of in such extremes and still continue to be that I think it's important for us to be really conscious and thoughtful with when we appropriate their art. I have a a lovely article from Everyday Feminism that's uh, four ways to honor Native American culture without appropriating the culture. They're really simple and things you can just think about. The first being that you can support Native American artists. Instead of buying Native American art from some white dude who thinks he had a vision in San Francisco, maybe actually seek out Native American artists who are representing their own culture and give back to that community. Learn about, and if you can, back Native Amer- Native-led movements. In addition to what they say is, in addition to protesting racist mascots and offensive fashion accessories, I mean, we haven't even gotten into the Redskins and all those things. Hmm. <laughs> um, Native communities are constantly fighting to end violence against women. They're staging rallies to protect the environment, which is very important to their culture, Uh, reforming their justice and education, revitalizing indigenous languages, teaching spirituality. There's so much more that you, that if you just go and learn about it, that you can help support and not just say how terrible that these people are not being represented. A big one also is calling out appropriation because it's offensive and not just because you know your indigenous friend doesn't like it not liking this outfit it's i can acknowledge the time period and the fact that it was a fashion statement of the time period and still say that it's not okay anymore Mm -hmm. and that it's something to consider it's important for us to call these things out because they're not okay now not just because 
we think somebody else might be offended. Also, we can support non-native companies and organizations that actively honor those cultures. Mm-hmm. It's just about being conscious and, and making an effort. Thank you, Jesse. You're welcome. So Robert says that People Magazine called and wants to know if they can take a picture of Murphy next to the skin marks. Ugh. And the way that Murphy just like dumps her bag on the desk and she goes, I can't take it anymore, which is another Murphyism yep. that I'm learning. She says a lot. Everyone hates me. I try not to let it bother me favorite jokes of the episode Mm -hmm. and in general people have hated me before but I dealt with it better I was younger, I was tougher I was drinking Drinking. I love this line so much I also love Robert Robert puts his arms around Murphy big hug come here, right to the chest he rocks her I think at one point this is all going to pass you know she saw a car in the parking lot that said I break for Bickner's on it I do actually want that sticker we should try to get it Yes. and he goes that's right you just let it all out we'll hold your phone calls no one can bother you in your office what would I do without you Robert she can't believe she's saying that can he believe it but unfortunately Robert is quitting he's been offered a job VP of Comedy Development. My favorite is he goes, I've been offered a job. A network job. A network job? (laughs) (laughs) No, by the way, uh, the CBS VP of Comedy Development was Greg Mayday at the Mm -hmm. time. Just a little reference. He really just applied his sort of positive thinking. But next thing he knew, they were taking him to lunch. Saying they liked the way he dressed. He had a nice spin on things, whatever that means. <laughs> this is so self-referential. Dude, okay, so the last thing he says, I have to know if that was in a critique of Murphy Brown. Oh, God. And that's why they reference it. This, I love this kind of humor. Me too. It's my favorite thing yes. when you sort of poke fun at yourself, but mm-hmm. you reference what's happening. Like when we get to uh, season two with yeah. Connie Chung, yep. that whole thing is great. I'm kind of a sucker for these kind of jokes. I love them so much. And then he, he goes, well, I have a meeting with the Charles brothers now. <laughs> so if you're unaware of who the Charles brothers are, is they are Glenn and Les Charles, and they created Cheers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also worked on Taxi and some of the great comedies of all time, but obviously Cheers is what they're sort of known as. Yes. They're pitching him a comedy on a bunch of accountants, but he thinks workplace comedies are dead. And the audience goes crazy. Lose and he does this kind of hand wave like, yeah. eh. And this one I wrote, please tell me this was a real review. Please tell me that they were poking at somebody who said this before they got... It's funny, yeah, I didn't think that, but maybe. I thought it was more like we're making fun of ourselves but hey yeah that could be a thing i just want everyone find the robert in yourself be the robert you want to be in the world and spoiler see a robert in eight years yep eight years guys yep eight years he's the best uh miles comes off the elevator in a tan suit (laughs) miles do they get letters you think about the tan suit oh do people go he doesn't look producer like producer in the tan suit Ah, oh, that's uh, that's a bitter pull. It is a bit, isn't it? Yep. So his hair is slicked back now. <laughs> he looks like a 90s movie villain. He kind of does. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to know why Murphy's so glum. Everyone who's <laughs> facing a lawsuit, step forward. Not so fast, Murphy. <laughs> Don't play with me, Miles. I've he's hit so, old people. I've got nothing to lose. He's so delighted in himself. He's so great. Seems the Bickners have had three faulty brake light tickets. Um, so they're dropping the suit. 
you're kidding, this is great. And then she goes into this sort of tirade about that the, the Grey Panthers will stop sending her hate mail. She doesn't have to wear a Jane Pauly mask when she leaves the house. No more Bickners. Miles, I could kiss you. And I paused it by accident when she, like, grabs his face. And he looks terrified. Yeah. I mean, his cheeks are all out. And he looks like, oh, my God, Murphy please Brown, don't. please don't kiss me. Please don't kiss me. And then she goes, but I'm just going to do this. And she just messes up his hair what instead. I love she goes, I'll just do this. The way that Grant, in, like, almost one sort of move, looks around, pushes his glasses up and then very sort of head down goes into the back room away from everybody it's fantastic i wrote that the way she says and does it is so precious and playful all Mm -hmm. of a sudden that it feels very much like candace doing that to grant yeah i was thinking that too it it's so precious and i was like oh that was just them them. and after miles (laughs) angry exit (laughs) we find ourselves at the townhouse and murphy bursts in through her front door and she is singing acapella sugar pie honey bunch i wrote with the joy of a woman who doesn't care she can sing this is guts this is why candace bergen has five emmys asterisk Mm -hmm. because she took herself out of the running and technically no one can really beat her record because she didn't give her the chance to beat their record exactly so she's singing uh, Can't Help Myself, actually, which most of us know as Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Which is from 1965, when the four tops on the Motown label, written and produced by Holland Dozier Holland. The song reached number one on the R&B charts and was the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 for two non-consecutive weeks. It is considered one of the most popular songs of the 1960s, and in 87, 88, was used in a Duncan Hines commercial. Mm-hmm. And the song will be, I guess, parodied in a way at the end of season two. Yep, yep. We'll talk about that we'll later. We'll talk about that later. What I love most about this is this is the the Murphy we saw at the end of the pilot episode who's just abandoned, singing whatever key she feels like, dancing with abandon. I wrote that she's just spinning herself with Eldon. Eldon is standing there in a floral R t-shirt. It's hilarious the way that she dances with his oh, hand. My he God. doesn't even He's move. He's just standing there, not moving in his overalls and his very artistic shirt. And she's just grabbing his hand and spinning herself as if she's partner dancing. And he's just watching this happen. Arms akimbo. Like, just sort of, yep. like... I wrote, she's a clown. She's the best. The way, like, it's very Chaplin-esque, sort of Still the way that, that she's hat just, on. It's like her arms are rubbery. But it's funny you bring up the pilot, because in this moment, I just thought, there's really a huge contrast between this abandonment mm-hmm. and just, like, lifeless limbs mm-hmm. and uh, clown hilarity. Yeah. And the pilot. She's more comfortable now. She is. But that was the thing we talked about, is that the moment she sings at the end of the pilot is the first time that we see her kind of be looser yeah. in that episode and it is, is it harkens to what will happen so Eldon finally stops her with hey Aretha give it a rest and she says Eldon she had a great day you want to know why because evil doesn't always win out because she beat some people at their own game yes I pulverized the Bickners two ruthless despicable monsters of greed and I beat their stinky little brains out I'm gonna go celebrate with some microwave brownies ha Oh, the ha. It's so good. And she starts to work her way into the kitchen, and he watches her go, and he just very calmly reaches down and grabs the phone, says information. He needs the number of that Betty Ford place. And then the doorbell rings, and he says, never mind. He's going to call them back later and goes and answers the door. And at the door, there's our favorite couple. He goes, I'm Bob. This is Myrna. We're the Bickners. 
<laughs> They're in on this now. Murphy comes in asking who it is, and she stops, and Eldon just goes, the Bickners! And my favorite is her saying, what do you want, Bickners? And she wakes, makes her way in, because at this point, everyone knows that their name is a swear word. So I think we should just, just talk very quickly about Amesy Strickland. Oh, definitely. You may recognize her from the Golden Girls, but, but more than that, she has been part of television forever. I knew her from Dragnet. Oh, awesome. I was obsessed with Dragnet as a kid. She was on Bonanza, The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, uh, Dick Van Dyke. She played several different characters on The Andy Griffith Show mm-hmm. back when they forgot, oh, it's not radio, maybe we should cast other people. Nah. Can we, can we discuss how many credits she had? Oh, yes, please. She passed away in July of 2000, and by that point on IMDb alone, she had 268 credits. Damn, girl. Yeah. That's insane. Mm-hmm. She's, again, another one of those people who just had that career. Mm-hmm. And was sort of the old lady in the 80s and the 90s. Yep. It's, it's what I love about these guest actors. We have Mike Haggerty, Eric Christmas, Amesy Strickland. They are all people who figured out who they were within the industry mm-hmm. and just worked. Yeah. Um, or And are still working. As, as an actor, I really appreciate seeing careers of longevity from smart actors. And Same we have a here. lot of that in our yeah. guest stars. We've talked about that with people that we have already gotten to interview and more to come. It's it's just very heartening. These are people who made lifelong careers and they're not just flash in the pan. Yeah, I love it. And she is incredible. Like I said, her voice in this is the best. So Murphy wants to know what the Bickners want. And Myrna says they were there. She made a blueberry pie. Bob crimped the edges. Um, they just want to make sure that there are no hard feelings. Eldon pops in in between as he is wont to do, saying, oh, that looks heavy. And he, he'll take that for them. Eldon wants pie. Eldon always wants pie. And she says, oh, aren't you an angel? Here's a quarter. And he just, he look, he takes the quarter and looks with his beautific expression. And Murphy says, my Nana used to give me quarters. And then just walks away oh, with the, the pie. It. <laughs> it's the best. God, Robert Pastorelli's delivery. I love so, he says so Nana. It really stood out to me. It's a very, it harkens of a, a culture he was raised in. I agree, yes. Mm-hmm. And she says that she's like, no hard feelings. They said life's too short to hold grudges. They forgive her. She says, forgive me. And they say, even though you squelched any hope of financial security in their golden years, there's no need for resentment. <laughs> and they're so sincere. That's the thing. And she says, no, but you guys don't understand. Lawsuits like this hurt everyone because everyone's premium is going to go up. And a lot of people, including people like them, won't be able to afford car insurance at all at that point. And Bob says that is a very good point. But if they had $1.5 million, higher premiums wouldn't have been such a problem. He's got such a great delivery. (laughs) He's so good. And at this point, Eldon has slowly made his way back and he's holding up piece of pie he's already sliced and he's already going to town on this thing the pie in the background and then offering some to mr bickner it's so good again filling the pauses it's so good so at this point bob's ready to go bob's worked his way back to the to the door myrna's still next to murphy and no why well we'll wait for it okay um so eldon is leaning at, at the door eating pie next to bob who's ready to go and they say it's they they better get going and Myrna kind of is leaning in to confide to Murphy that now that the lawsuit is off of Bob's shoulders, his manliness has returned. And I like just the way she says it, it's so actually dirty what she's talking about, but it's just so pure. 
She's like, all day he's been pawing at me like a dog in a kennel. I can see why. That's like Elden. He's holding the pie and he's just looking at it. I can see why. Best Emmy for pie eating in a television series. I love that. Robert Pastorelli. I love that he turns pie making into a turn on and he is feeling the senior sexuality. Him and Toby Ziegler love the pie. Love that pie. I wrote, Bob's out the door. (laughs) Myrna, on her way out, encourages Murphy to try and get some rest. She looks dead tired. And she heads her way out and kind of, you know, says goodbye to Eldon. Eldon shuts the door and is leaning on the door handle saying, thank God they spared us our lives. And Murphy has sat down in a chair right next to the front door. And right at that moment, we just hear, Bob, watch out for the stair. Whoa. Crash. Grifters. Grifters, guys. And Murphy's head goes in her hand. Which is great. In an interesting place chair. Not usually there. The chair that just just randomly is there. there. It's a pineapple shelf. Refer to previous episodes for that reference. Yes. And so we close the door <laughs> on the Bickners. On the Bickners. And much like the ending to Blade Runner, <laughs> we'll leave you with the ambiguous question. Grifters or not grifters? You decide. I can't. It's, it's, no, we're leaving it ambiguous. I know. The audience is going to think. But now I'm with them as well. Okay, I don't know. So thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Bickners. So you guys know the drill. Social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Murphy Brown Pod. Website. MurphyBrownPod.com. Email. MurphyBrownPod at gmail.com. Spotify playlist. Go to our website and find the link. That's right, Jesse. Spotify is weird. (laughs) (laughs) Also, please rate and review on iTunes. And if you have, and your buddy who listens to it, who you love chatting with about it, hasn't done it yet, be like, buddy, come on. It's free. Support Lauren and Jesse. Yes, be our buddy. Make your buddy be our buddy. Be their buddy. Be buddies. Buddy together. Bud, bud. Next episode is episode 22, The Morning Show. A.K.A. The season one finale. Guys! We've gone this far. We've gone so far. We're touching hands. We are. I can't believe we're here. Oh, wait. E.T. We're very excited to talk about this finale with you. We're very excited to launch our way into season two after that. Mm -hmm. Um, But before that, we actually will be joined by Barnett Kelman for a two-part little sort of season one wrap-up. Talk about his work on the show. In case you um, haven't heard his name every single episode up until now, Barnett Kelman is the man behind the camera of Murphy Brown. He directed Murphy Brown this entire season and for seasons to come. Yes. He has some incredible insight. He remembers way more than he thought he was going to remember about it. We had such a great time talking Murphy Brown in general, but especially season one with him, and we think you'll really, really enjoy it. Yeah, it's a really great interview. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) 